Folks, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg Show. And the more things change, the more they remain the same. Uh, Twelve years into my program, over 1,800 interviews in various capacities. Uh, My fifth book is about to be authored, but I wouldn't really be anywhere without people like my next guest who were kind enough uh, to open their heart and let me find my voice in those early years. And I can only imagine that my guests learned that from all the amazing titans and heroes of his that were kind enough to let him play on the bandstand when he was still wet behind the ears. Guys like Bobby Hutcherson and Harold Land, other guys like Gene Stone and other venerable drummers, Spencer Dryden. But, uh, you know, I always keep an eye on my guest. Uh, you know, it's been a precarious time the last few years, especially for <clears throat> my elders with the pandemic. And But he continues to hold it down at the, the Deerhead, <laughs> Deerhead Lodge in Pennsylvania and uh, really has had such an amazing career. Everything that he really plays on just swings so hard and also feels really good. Bill Goodwin, welcome back to the Jake Feinberg thanks, Show. Thanks, Jake. I can't even remember. Uh, I remember when you started the series, you called me and you wanted to talk about the 60s and you wanted to talk about the Cosmic Brotherhood. <laughs> That's right. I mean, but I mean, to me, Bill, like when I step back from it all, like uh, you're one of those guys that, I mean, you could play straight ahead jazz, but you were kind of bound and determined to get your hand in almost every cookie jar as it related to music, you know? And I just, I just, I I guess maybe my, I just wanted you to talk to younger cats about, and maybe I'm, and you can push back if this is not the case, but just the generosity of the older musicians who really, you know, this wasn't, you weren't in the academy, you were on the bandstand, uh, you know, and was there a, a sort of a a humbling moment for you early on when it was kind of, you know, the guys, maybe you got kicked off the bandstand, but the point is that, you know, you knew what you had to shed on, you came back, they let you back on, and you and you got it together, and it, and your confidence grew from it. Well, that's exactly what happened, actually. Uh, when I was right out of high school, uh, uh, my sister was dating and, and eventually married uh, Terry Trotter, the pianist. Wow. And Terry's best friends were Herbie Lewis, the bass player, and Bobby Hutchison. So he introduced me to them, and he introduced me to Charles Lloyd. And Charles used to have a gig in Pasadena every weekend with a, a small group, and he, he never had a steady drummer. And I started sitting in there, I was still like... 16 going on 17, or maybe it was 17, I guess. And he liked my playing. And I was completely untrained and uh, not very experienced at that point, but I had a lot of chutzpah, and uh, and I, those guys were my friends, and, uh, you know, it was just a wonderful situation. But after six months or so, uh, we did this gig, and uh, Charles decided he needed to, you know, he was going to get more serious, he needed somebody who was more together than me, so he let me go. I was I was devastated by it, truthfully, for about you know a week. Yep. And, and he replaced me with a guy who was younger than me, who played better than me, Mike Romero. <laughs> right. Keltner talks about that cat. I know. Yeah. I just saw that. I saw that Jim had uh, talked about Mike, and of course, you know, Albert was around. That's when I met Albert Stinson. Was at that that place, and we played together. And he was younger than me, but not much, about a year younger. And uh, you know that whole scene, and Mike 
who I sort of, I didn't hate Mike, but I was really challenged by him because he was so together. And uh, later, you know, we became great friends and we used to hang out all the time. And we would go marauding through Hollywood looking for places to sit in. <laughs> I love, dude, this is, you were at the, um, was that was that the, the Dragonwick Club? Yes, exactly. Okay, because Lindley, Lindley, David Lindley used to go there and and see Mingus. You know, I mean, and, and Kellner and probably Romero would sit in the front row and maybe even watch you with Charles Lloyd and Bobby Hutcherson. But though, I mean, that those guys were so accessible. I mean, I were they were. I mean, they were your idols. They were your heroes, but. Were they recognized as geniuses in our society at that time, or was it just kind who, of who, we, who are we talking like like Char- like Lloyd? I mean, I know they weren't big time leaders yet. Well, he was a college student at USC, he right? Recognized except the fact that he was a happening alto player, and he was in, still in college, and he was already playing with the heavy uh, musicians in LA, like uh, Gerald Wilson, who's playing in Gerald's band, and which is the best of the uh, the black you know, essentially black bands, you know, in Los Angeles. You, um, so can you just talk a little bit about the, um, I mean, that whole milieu, there was a barium grass, grass milk music where Keltner taught snare drum, Lindley taught banjo, Gary Foster taught clarinet. I mean, were you, were you also like doing, other things in the music world uh, aside from just playing gigs when you were out of high school and, and ultimately like, how would you describe what that music was? I, you know, it was interesting. I was having a discussion last night with some friends just about uh, the birth of the cool, cool jazz, West coast bop. Um, I'm just curious about that kind that style of music in the, and uh, the West coast at that time, how you would define it. And what kind of other things you did to sing for your supper before you were an established professional? Well, I had a day job from 17 to 19. I worked in the parking lot at NBC in Hollywood, which is actually a great gig. Dude, you were lo- such a great gig. You, you would get, try to get gigs, you know? Well, I, I didn't get gigs from that, but I met a lot of musicians who later became my friends and colleagues. When I got back, by the time I was 19, I was ready to go out and I quit the job. And uh, we just went out and played after that. Pretty much it from 19 until now, and I'm 81 now. <sighs> Who did you meet? A lot of the like the Emil Richards, the Wrecking Crew cats in the NBC studios. Oh, Who? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I met Emil, Red Mitchell, uh, Larry Bunker. I already knew Stan Levy or Shelley Mann, and they were kind of my mentors. And Mel Lewis. Those three guys were. I used to call them my Jewish uncles because they men- mentored me, and they. Would send me to sub for them. Help! I would help them carry their drums. I'm sorry. We, we, I just uh, want to stop you. Stuff. I want to stop you right there. That is such. The, I you know. I want you to talk about. Let's just break down Shelly Man for a minute. How did you? She, I mean, Keldner would call Shelly, at and when he was like you know younger, like sixteen or seventeen, and and Flip, who I interviewed, and I believe is still alive. Um, yes, yeah, she. I think. <laughs> no, I think she. I think she may have passed away. I'm not sure. Okay, well, I, I, I'm glad I I'm glad I got this interview with her because, um, but but Flip would be like Flip would be like, oh, he's taking a nap, but let me go wake him up, and the next thing you know, he's spending time on the phone, still groggy from the nap, talking about how big his symbols were or something with Keltner. I mean, the guy was one of the most important people 
uh, in music history. I just, how did you befriend him? And then ultimately, like, what were some of the gigs that he would call you on? Well, I, I befriended Shelley when I was in uh, high school, actually junior high, sort of buying records he was on. He became like my favorite drummer and kind of became a role model. I loved any drummer that could play anything, really, because totally. I just wanted to, wanted to know how to play. But Shelley was a particularly interesting player. And then I met him probably when I was about 18, something like that. And he was just a super guy. And like you said, he would take time out from whatever he was doing just to sit and talk with me and give me advice. And, and a lot of times even just tell me, I'd be gabbing away because I was such a gabby, stuck up, <laughs> stupid kid. And he would just tell me, shut up, shut up. Yeah. You know, let me talk. Let's man. Stop talking, man. Yeah, I did. Yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, and, uh, he liked it, and it, he liked my spirit. You know, anyway, the time I was nineteen, he was calling me to sub for him in his club, the Shelley's Manhole, with his band. Oh my, dude, Goodwin, you're they, blowing they my mind to, right uh, now, dude. Well, he used to call a bunch of different guys, but I was one of the guys, and I also started playing there every Tuesday. I think it was with Bud Shank. Bud had a regular gig there, and that was. Uh, the band was Gary Peacock and Dennis Budimir and myself. You know, it's and so beautiful Carmel, that you said it's so. Jones, huh? No, I, 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 you're just it, you're warming my heart because we just lost Dennis. That band, oh. that band must have been fierce, man. The Shank Band. I think we scared the shit out of Bud. But that was uh, Gary. <laughs> Gary kind of took over the band because you know he wanted to play a certain way. And he was like very in demand. He was really a great player before he went to New York, and uh, very much in demand. And he and Dennis kind of just said, "Look, uh, we want Bill to play." So, so Bud hired me, and I worked with Bud later on, years later. And I said, "You know, I never thought you really liked me when I played with you." So, no, I liked you, okay. <laughs> I don't really think he did, but he was a nice guy. So the um, th- this well, actually, this is interesting. Here, I'm I'm going back to my notes. Here, he said, uh, "This is." This is from Budimer. He said, one of the great jazz jobs I ever had was with the, with the late Bud Shank. It was me, Bud, Gary Peacock, and then obviously another guy that probably was an influence on you was Chuck Flores on drums. Yeah, Chuck. Chuck was probably the original drummer in Bud's quartet, uh, which was Claude Williamson and uh, Don Bagley, I think, and Chuck. He said we worked... I really liked, and I really liked Chuck, and I had heard him with Woody Herman's band, so I already knew his playing. Really great, great guy, too. He said we worked at a. He said we worked at a little club called the the Drift Inn in Malibu. Yeah, the Drift Inn, right? Unbelievable. I, you know, this yeah. is important. This is really important for. I mean, I don't care if it's Nick Ciroli, Bill Goodwin, Shelly Mann, uh, Chuck Flores. Um, there was something about the the drummers of that time that they were able to generate sonic expansion not through volume. Because there was not a lot of times the 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 drums weren't mic'd per se. In fact, if you were playing with a guitar and an organ, they had amplifiers, but you didn't. I just wanted you to talk about like Larry Bunker, uh, you know, Milt Holland, not really a trap drummer, but you know, these guys, the the it was so the sound was so huge and they weren't slamming the kit. How do you account for that taste that, that was developed at that time? Well, if you're talking about recorded sound, uh, you know, you couldn't play loud in the studio because the mice wouldn't accept it and the engineers 
wouldn't accept it. You had to play it differently than you did live. Mm-hmm. Well, I had to kind of learn that through experience of, you know, you know going head to head with some engineers, some of them more helpful than others. I remember the guy who was, I really liked working with was Al Schmidt. Rest in uh, peace. Yeah, absolutely. Engineer, but he was also an A&R man. And a little later, in the, in the mid-60s, I was playing with Paul Horn, and he was our producer. So we uh, records I did with Paul, we did an RCA, and Al was at the helm. And I really liked working with him. And also I had a, a friend named Bones Howe, who was uh, also well, a dude. drummer. Oh, my God. Dude, major. How Blaine loved that guy. Yeah. Producer, yeah. Oh, my God. And Bones and I, uh, I mean, that's how I, I ended up with the gig doing the record with Tom Waits, because I called Bones and, and asked for the job. And he said that Tom had already talked to him about me because we had just met and I was going to do the record. So that's really a funny, it's all these things pay off, you know, in the future. But at the beginning of the scene, I just became a huge West Coast jazz fan. Started buying records and I loved, most of all, Dave Brubeck's quartet and I loved uh, Shorty Rogers and his Giants. Right. Shelley. Different bass players, Ralph Pena or Leroy Vinegar is my favorite. And uh, and I listened and played along with them. You know, I played along with them. And uh, I was still playing saxophone in school. I was playing drums on my own. As far as anybody knew, I was really a drummer, and I played saxophone on the side. But I was really a saxophone player, a bad one, who played drums on the side. <laughs> and eventually I gave up on the tenor because I was never going to be good. And I was getting pretty good on the drums, I thought. But I hear enough from some of my friends who still have survived I didn't sound that good, but they didn't want to tell me it hurt my feelings. Well, I mean, very, I mean, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, well, I don't know. Maybe if they're talking about it in the live context, because you were making albums with Vinegar when you were like, I mean, you were making, I mean, you were young. When I made the record, yeah, I made a record with Leroy when I was twenty-two. So you couldn't have sounded that bad. Oh no, I was good. Yeah. by the time I was nineteen, you know, the records with uh, Dennis, Dennis and Gary Peacock, I was nineteen. Um, we, we recorded the, the stuff that came out on, uh, what was it, Bill Hardy's label. Uh, was it Revelation? Yeah, Revelation. Unbelievable. Wait, okay, so I want to go back to Schmidt for a minute. Like, in essence, like, can you just talk about, you know, those early sessions that you were on uh, in terms of, like, were there any baffles? Was there a drum booth? Or did they drop a mic right in the middle of the room? I mean, I interviewed... Um, his name is escaping me now. Great producer for Fantasy Records, and you know they'd pack Cal Jader's entire band, including Dick Burke, and and all those cats into one of the, you know Studio A at Wally Hyder's, and they'd all balance themselves out and cook the groove and record the album. I mean, can you talk about the process of the engineers that you didn't butt heads with that that, that where the music was just glistening? Well, when the scene was changing and recorded music and a lot of. Uh, younger engineers wanted to, you know, take the head off the bass drum, and and I didn't want to do that. I would do it if they insisted, and they put the mic right in the bass drum, and, and you'd have to deaden it and and all that. But the record, the jazz records I made, I just brought my drum set and set up. They put up a couple of mics, and we all played in the same room, no baffles or anything like that. Just like playing a gig live, live session, except in the studio. When when you like fundamentally, did you? I mean, did you go to blows with cats? If after I cannot imagine what it must have blows hardly. <laughs> well, you know what it is like. I mean, it's a couple of things in my mind here, but it just fundamentally, when you know 
I remember talking to Kenny Barron. The first session he was on was with his brother Bill, and all the guys were like in, a, in like almost like a circle in the room. Drop a mic overhead. Everything seemed to work out fine. And then next thing you know, it's like eh, there's all this separation and Goodwin's in a drum booth and this that. I mean, I mean, yeah, it was a gig. I get it. But I mean, but you know, they came with the uh, they came with more tracks and more pop music because they wanted to be able to use more, uh, you know, more contemporary methods of uh, separation for mixing and uh, overdubbing and so forth. Absolutely. I'm wondering, like, philosophically, like, it wasn't, I mean, you weren't a leader per se, but just from the aesthetic of being uh, somebody who grew up when jazz was a popular music, did that, did you try to actually avoid that after a while in the studio scene and just play live as much as possible? Not at all. No, I wanted every, any work I could get. Uh, <laughs> married and had a kid when I was 22. Sure. No, I dig. I, I mean, I wanted to work. I, wanted yeah. to work. I, did, like, every, I did anything I could. Uh, I'd look at the calendar and, fly, and ask what time it was, how much it paid, and what I should wear. And that was it. So I used to try to work seven days a week. And often I, often I did. None of the gigs paid much. The recordings were great because they paid twice as much as a normal gig, which would be you know, 12 to $15. Recording session paid thirty thirty three dollars. So I mean, I really, I really, I just want to say for the record, especially with my younger daughter, who's it's a it's her birthday today. Are these, oh. I, I, you know, Bill, man, like you're still swinging at the top of your game. But I have to be honest; I don't think there was a better drummer that had their shit together. And it wasn't even slick; it was just this Bob DeRoe stuff, multiplication rock. It's unreal. Stuart Scharf, you. Uh, yeah, that was our sort of little uh, schoolhouse rock combo. It was a lot of the same people on every everything at one time. It just sounded so, it, it, your playing was so crisp, and it was every note, every everything counted. This is the question I had, though, because this is, and I just wonder from the West Coast perspective, because you were marinating out there at the time, you know, Obviously, you'd sing for your supper and take whatever gigs, you know, weddings, bar mitzvahs, Zydeco, whatever, didn't matter. Um, Max Roach would go to blows if somebody called his music jazz. Mingus called his music Mingus music. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, was, I mean, I just feel like terminology, like even right now, you're, you play uh, at the, you know, at, at the, is the Deerhead Lodge, is that what it's called? Uh, yeah, Deerhead Live. Yeah. Uh, you know, and like, everything gets labeled. Oh, this is a jazz gig. Uh, this is, the, you know, and, and the labels, in my mind, have stratified vocabulary and music. I just wonder, like, Shelly, uh, Shorty, uh, Red Mitchell. I mean, was it, were these guys all from the Duke Ellington School? Did you use labels with your music? Because if there was one person that I could, I mean, that I could talk to who's been on so many different albums, it just... To me, it's all music, and today... Well, I, I agree, but jazz is a, is a term that white people use to describe black music. Wow, that, that's the best line I've ever heard in my life, by the way. Spice it up. You know, well, Nicholas Payton talks about this a lot, and it's so black, bam, you know, black American music. Uh, jazz is like uh, that kind of music that we, we don't really like. You know, so black people's music, we don't really like it. You know, it's kind of entertaining, like the minstrel show. comes out of the minstrel, you know, the whole jazz thing comes out of the minstrel the plantation 
minstrel shows and all that shit. Well, t- talk a little bit more about that. You mean like the 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 um... the way white people perceive black music? Absolutely, but I mean when you you know the, when you say minstrel shows, that's where some of this. I mean actual minstrel shows where people would put on blackface and you know, imitate a bunch of you know ignorant uh, you know black people jumping around singing and dancing and. And that was a white character. Black, black people would put on blackface too. That's the right. Famous, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, it's great. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. He's a famous uh, Bird Williams. Wow. Performed in a, he was black and he performed in blackface. So, so in terms of like, but like the cats that knew, like I mean, Shelley was with Coleman. Haw- Coleman Hawkins kept him straight and off drugs, like. For the guys that could play this music and knew how the soul, what what would they call they they call the jazz too, or they just that these terminology wasn't. Well, I don't think anybody was really talking about it in those terms, but you know that was more like the press and uh, yeah, like people like uh, me, right? You had a late fans. yeah yeah I did. Well, no, well, you know, you're not. I don't no, I dig, I dig, I dig. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, it's like a marketing term. I mean, what's fusion? What's uh, you know, rock and roll. What's country and western? What's uh, you know, any any of that shit? And I actually wasn't a jazz fan, but I came up reading the beginning of rock and roll when Elvis's records started coming out, and I was already listening to Chuck Berry and Little Richard and uh, Fast Domino. Well, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, were you were you uh, yeah. were you were you like hip to uh, Dyke and the Blazers and Hank Ballard and the Midnighters and those raunchy? Oh, sure. Of course, yes. Johnny Otis. Johnny Otis had a TV. That's show. right, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, one question. Band and our great players on there, like Plas Johnson. Plas Johnson, Cole. man, you must have met him in the NBC studios, dude. That dude was sick. Well, I didn't meet Plas there, but I met I met him later. <laughs> uh, later on, I, I got to meet him. really great, great cat. Um, but I did get to meet. You know, I was very young, and I got before I left high school. I had already met Art Pepper, and I. had I had met Charles Lloyd, and I had, uh, you know, met a lot of musicians, and I was still living in Palm Springs going to high school. And I went to L.A., I had these connections, uh, and I just worked I just worked my connections and met more and more people. I cannot, I, I, I really cannot believe that you were driving from Palm Springs to L.A. That's unbelievable, too. Well, I, moved, I, well, I used to, we used to drive, my friends and I used to drive in to go to the lighthouse, and we were in, in Hermosa, yeah. And Howard Rumsey would let, would let us sleep on his floor. <laughs> Stay up the night. He didn't want us to drive too late. You know? What a sweet man. I, luckily, I interviewed that cat before. Oh, my God. Dude, um, one thing I don't know, I, I just didn't have my, my chops together, but it's, I'm curious because you had all these connections to people that were willing to take the shirt off their back for you. Uh, why, why did you uh, make the conscious decision to not go into the studio scene in Los Angeles? I didn't make a conscious decision. They made a conscious decision. The scene in Los Angeles was uh, ruled by the contractors. Right. And if you weren't on the contractors list as somebody they knew you could really rely on, and I was a young guy and I didn't read that great. And, you know, I was, didn't really know that much about it. And my contemporaries like uh, Jim Gordon and, and uh, John, uh, Garen, John Garen, John Garen, yeah. They figured it out. Mostly through uh, the, their reading ability. They would, Johnny told, Garrett told me, he, uh, I said, how'd you learn to play those beats, you know? He said, well, H.B. Uh, Barnum wrote them out, so I just played what he wrote. 
So he could read. Now I want to be clear. Well, John's can, a really good reader. Yeah. John, I mean, I want to be clear though. Please tell me about. You must have put your toe in the water. Maybe you got a call to a couple of like jingle sessions or maybe some commercials. I used to do, I used to do demos. I did quite a few de song songwriter and singer demos. I did Lou Rawls' first demo for Capitol. No way. Wow. Wow. Which I had forgotten, but Mike Michael Kiskuna called me up one day a few years ago and said, I just found this tape in the Capitol vault. It says, you're on it with the Lou Rawls uh, demo. And he didn't want to know about the other guys because he didn't know who they were. Who, who, was, who was on? Was it Herbie Lou? Who was on the, who was on bass? Uh, I think it was Jack. No, Bobby Haynes was the bass player. Oh, my. my I love this kid. Vic Levy was the alpha player. And Lynn Blessing was the vibes player. Steve Goldman was the piano player. And we had a steady gig at, at that time at uh, Pandora's Box. And Lou was the singer. This is before he became famous. So he had just uh, dropped out of the gospel. You know, he replaced Sam Cooke in the gospel Absolutely. group. And he was just in L.A. hanging out. We did this gig every Friday and Saturday. We... We each made ten dollars a gig a night. <laughs> this was pre cap pre David Axelrod, Lou Rawls, pre he wasn't he oh, before he, before he made his record with uh, uh, you know uh, Les McCann. Yeah, rather drink muddy water and sleep in a hollow log. And what was the what was the major? I'm curious about the the, the studio that you cut. Do you remember the studios you cut you cut that demo in? It was Capitol Studio. It was, was Capitol. Uh, you know, Capital B, I think. But the reality is you had guys like... So tell me a little bit about, like... Because, I mean, Keltner and I talk quite a bit. And, and I mean, obviously, uh, he, for what it's worth, I mean, he was a complete jazz snob. And Albert and him just were always trying to burn as hard as they could. Did you... Did you when did you first connect with Keltner and Romero? Were you guys all just jazz fanatics at that time? Because it is certain... We were like, we were kids, man. And we were, you know, all around the same age. We were total jazz bows. We were still teenagers. And we just loved, we loved the music and we loved the scene and all that. But, you know, when you, like Jim started getting calls, uh, you know, to do other stuff. You know, you, you know, you had a family too. You got to, you know, go where the gigs are. Oh, absolutely. He, he remains a, Remains a total uh, jazz jazz lover, but he plays. He's a great player. He's a very creative player. I, I tell him he's really a jazz player, and he disagrees with me. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I mean, Larry Klein t says that he's the Elvin Jones of rock music. You know, like he, you know. But 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 I'm curious. Like like Don Randy had a gig at at Sherry's near the airport. Right. Did you ever play those? Like with Putter Smith? Like I, I mean, because this is going back. Yeah. Man. I used to jam with Putter up in the his house in the mountains and usually start about seven in the morning. Oh, I love this, reason. dude. I freaking it. love it, dude. Yeah, with uh, Larry Coons' dad, Dave, wow. and a piano player named Ronnie Hoops. But I know Putter forever. And, uh, and yeah, we used to jam with Putter, occasionally work gigs. He was in the second version of the, uh, of the uh, Cosmic Brotherhood. Wait a minute. Yeah, you see, yeah. you're throwing out these cats like Lynn Blessing, you know, Madman Moffat yeah. from the Shelly Band. I mean, you were, was that Shelly Band like more of the old guard or was it already John Morrell and Gary Barone and those cats? Oh, no, no, this is way before that. Yeah, who was in that band that you used to... 61, 62, he had, uh, usually had, uh, we'd have Joe Gordon, uh, oh, my. Russ Freeman, oh, my. you know, and... Uh, and who's the bass player? Oh, Monty. 
Monty, dude. Monty stayed pretty much in that for a long time, and different horn players came in, like uh, he had Joe Maney and Jack Sheldon for a while, and, and uh, but yeah, those guys were all around. They were all available. I knew them all. We used to play together, rehearse together, hang out. But I was I was a kid. I was coming up, and Shelley gave me the chance to play with these guys. So they got to know me, and they got to know my playing. Connie Condoli was a part of that. And, uh, you know, I just went right to right to these guys and got to know them all. And fortunately, I guess they, they more or less liked me. Because I ended up working with all of them. Well, I mean, they must have. I mean, they, but they, but you didn't. It wasn't a ver- like even though we're just riffing and waxing poetic verbally here, you'd say that like a lot of the older guard, kind of it was more the less said the if it, the less said you knew you were doing okay, but there wasn't a lot of verbal direction per se, especially on the bandstand. Well, yeah, well there was a time when I was after I left Charles's group, I was really struggling with trying to get my chops together, and Stan Lee took me aside one night and said, "Look, man." You got the talent to do it, but you got to bear down. You got to practice. You got to get your hands together. Wow! And you know, Stan was a yeah, you know, oh a yeah, boxer. When he said something, you went like, "Yes, sir." But I thought to myself, if I don't do it, he's going to kill me. So I better do it. <laughs> so let's talk about. I mean, because I mean, you had the pillow bounce technique with the venerable late great Gene Stone. I mean, when you talk about getting your hands, because that's Gene what it sounds great, like. It sounds Gene to me a great when, friend of mine. Well, he was a Freddie Gruber student. Exactly. And Mike Romero was too, and so was Kelder for a while, I think. Oh they no, but I mean, out. when I listen to, I don't care if it's the Jack Wilkins stuff or it's the the uh, Hal Galper stuff or the or the Duro stuff. It, I mean, it sounds to me like you're you are you're. Not, it's not even efficient. It's just so cri- It's so crisp, and it doesn't sound like you're overplaying, which means your hands were on fire. You were you got your hands together. Well, you, know, you say getting hands together doesn't mean you can just play fast. Right. It means you have control. Right. That's right. That's right. And I didn't. I didn't even know how to hold the sticks right, to tell you the truth. But I could play. Always play music, man. You know, always play music. I just uh, didn't know how to play the drums, so I had to learn to play the drums. And that year, my when I was eighteen to nineteen, uh, was the year I got it together. I was working in the parking lot, and I used to practice every day at the gig with a practice pad and listen to jazz on the radio. In between, in between parking cars, that's so, so classic. That is just so classic. Park cars. I yeah. just told him where to park. <laughs> be like, I'm playing the practice. That's what Morello would be doing, dude. State Department tours. He'd be on the beach playing the practice pad. Well, Phil, Phil Woods grew up with Joe Morello, and he said when Joe was really sick one time, they went over to his house, and he's in bed with like an ice bag, and he's got a fever, and completely <laughs> fucked up, and got his practice pad, and he's just practicing his left hand. He's playing his it didn't matter, dude. He could be on his deathbed. He's playing the practice. It becomes a kind of an obsession, right? I, I never had a really fast left hand, but I have good hands, and I have good control, and I, you know, I know how to play at different volumes. Well, that's the other uh, di- dynamics is just so. I mean, so so ultimately, you weren't one of the inside guys. You the con- contractors, even though. Oh no no! no. The contractors. One of the biggest contractors in in L.A. lived across the street from me when I was a kid. Uh, Marion Klein, the wife of Manny, the trumpet player. Wow. And she was our family friend, and, and she knew I played, and she never hired me. <laughs> I knew Marion my whole life. She never hired me once. 
uh, you know, because uh, obviously Crown of Creation with Spencer and that stuff. But what what was the ins- what was the catalyst for you to say? Were you were were you road dogging it with a band? I mean, I know like Budimer was with no, Chico. No. How'd you they wind up coming LA. to the East Coast? Yeah, they were you know they were re- recording in L.A. And Spencer called me. Oh, you, we'd stayed. We talk every day when he was in town. And uh, sometimes he and Grace Slick would come over and hang with me. And so one day he just called me and told me to come in the studio. Fool around, fool around. Got nothing to do. The band wouldn't go in the studio because they didn't like the producer that was assigned to them. So they finally got Al Schmidt to come in and produce, and then they finished the record. But I, we just went in and hung out and jammed, really, the three of us. And there was an engineer there and everything. They had, the studio was bought out for like a month. Right. No, that they, they had full... No, I, what I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean, mean... I didn't make the question very clear. After the, that, after the West Coast for Goodwin, what was the catalyst to come to New York? What was the... Did you, were you on a, did you road dog it across the country with a band, or how did you get there? No, Gary Burton hired me, and I uh, moved to New York to play with Gary. The relationship... With Gary, he saw he he got tipped off by you. He had seen you play. How did you get? How did he? Was he hip to you? He knew me. He knew me. He never really remembered how I played, but Steve Swallow also knew me, and we had been friends and been hanging out. And, and then I guess Gary called and said, "You know, Steve and I were talking about drummers, and he mentioned that you would. We can't think of anybody we really like, but Steve mentioned that you always said you would love to play in the group. So." I can't remember how you played, so would you get me a plane ticket? <laughs> I went to the audition for him. Uh, At least he... We played, one, we played one tune and he hired me. That's so beautiful, man. I, I freaking was, love uh, the brotherhood, uh, man. Well, that's uh, that time I was with George Shearing. We've been on the road for a year with George. Wow. And uh, Which was a great gig. And, uh, and I gave my notice to George and I moved to New York about a month later. So I got to New York first week of January in 1969. Was was Al McKibben was Al McKibben on the ba- on bass with George or who was in that rhythm section? Bob Whitlock, Bob was the original Whitlock. bass player, Whoa. and then uh, then it was Andy Simpkins at the end. So, so you were on the road with Shearing, which must have been. Did you go overseas with him, or was it all domestic? No, no, he didn't do that. Then uh, he wouldn't fly. Interesting. So uh, we just played in the states, but we played. We must have played like forty-five weeks, you know, or something. Always working. And so you played one tune, Burton hired you, and then that was the ultimate, uh, that band was... He offered me the gig, man. He said, you want to move to New York? I said, yes. I wouldn't have done it without a gig. And so where, where, where was the first place that Goodwin moved into? First place that, that what? Where was the first place that the, the first dwelling? It was a, a lower west side of Manhattan, or where in, in those oh, artists in New York. Yeah. Well, the first six months I stayed with Steve Swallow at his apartment. Oh my dude, the man! What a freaking beautiful! I love the man so oh, much. Steve's a beautiful. He's a beyond beautiful man. It's stone, beautiful just a, such an eloquent, articulate. So you were hanging with Swallow, in and so because he used to talk about. The Flower District in New York. I'm not sure if this is before you moved there, but, you know, it was yeah, like... Yeah, that's the, the Camp Loft and all that. That's over at, like, 26th and uh, 6th. Because I, I think the Thelonious Monk Big Band would rehearse there. I'm just wondering, yeah, yeah. I'm like, when you got there, were you just hang... Swallows like, yo, come to jam. Can you just talk about, like, outside of the Burton gig, like, what were some of the 
uh, were you going to sl- slugs or where were you where were you going to, to sit in and sort of just get to know the lay of the land already i've been coming to new york for five years a couple of times a year at that point so i knew it's a lot of people right i just called everybody up and told them i was there and they'd come to see me and you know things would happen really naturally but you know i was i was very busy with gary the first year we worked all the time and uh, when i was off then i would uh, you know i'd go to slugs i'd go to the vanguard i'd go to, you know all the places where i had always gone i had already you know i prepared myself to come to new york i just couldn't go without a gig so i totally know I, I you know yeah. it's, it's so um with I, I want to get your philosophy on this. Not that this happened with Gary per se, but maybe with Phil. You know, a lot of younger cats, not necessarily. In, I'm, I'm not gonna, it's genre, not genre specific by any means. But they, I just see a lot of my friends, a lot of my peers. They go in and they record an album, and they record another album, and another album, and you know, because of the, of the lay of the land and the lack of the touring circuits, uh, they don't really ever get to play the songs live uh, per se, they don't road test the songs. Um, a lot of the songs wind up becoming atrophied. But when I talk to like Danny Gottlieb and Mark Egan from the Matheny group, um, obviously the Grateful Dead, not, you know, they, they have their own bag, but you know, the point is that like Matheny would go on the road and they, they, they road test new songs for like, uh, like two thir- thirds of a year before they would go in the studio and record them, because and then at that point when they would go in and record, certain songs would take on a whole new life of their own. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about like that process. Did that happen with some of the artists you worked on, where you would road test the tunes before you would actually uh, record them to vinyl or you know whatever? Well, uh, it just depends on who you're talking about. With Gary, uh, we had a repertoire, but mostly the stuff we played on the road was. And we played live with things that he had already recorded. So uh, when we did uh, the records I did with him, we played new new stuff, and we rehearsed it, and then we recorded it. So it was like the throb, and then the record with Keith, uh, Gary Burton, Keith Jarrett. Right. We first for those, and then we went to the studio and did them. But uh, they were not long sessions. I mean, they were. I think we did two sessions on throb. I think you did one on Keith's record. Was there a, a leader you worked with where you'd 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 really you know do that road test material where you'd go out for a, 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 quite a few tours and then once the songs really grew into their own forms then you would record? Uh, I can't really recall that. I know uh, I worked with in L.A. in '68. I worked with Mose Allison and Red Mitchell for a week, and, and uh, Mose really liked the way it sounded, so he booked studio time. We did a record with him we played for a week and then we did a record and for a couple of days after the gig finished and uh it was all stuff that was all his stuff and i you know I, i'm sure we were playing some of it on the gig and other things he just called that he wanted to play we, we had established a nice like little uh, group feeling and well I, you know i ended up working with Mo's off and on for years after that but that was my first time uh, what was what's the name of that album? I'm not sure if I'm hit to that album. It's called I've been doing some thinking. I've been doing some thinking. So, you ultimately, Bill Goodwin came up. Uh, I just, what do you say to younger cats about how to keep a band together in today's world? Like, I, it's really hard, man. You got me, but there are people that do it. 
you know, they have the same or very similar bands. We did it with Phil for a long time, but the times are different now, Jake, as you... I know, well, no, I, I, I know my friends. Tell. I mean, all I'm saying is my friends that are, that are road-dogging it now have to stay on the road for at least a month in order to make enough money at the merch table to come back and actually have some bread. Like it's, and you know, there's, they're in a sprinter van. These are hardcore musicians with lots of great gear, incredible grooves. They're not playing bebop or anything, but I mean, I see, and they're trying to play, that's the point. They're trying to play original music. It's just gotten to this point now where if it's not recognizable, it's so hard to get on the road. And I, I just wonder how, 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 based on the fact that so much of your music was created within the group context, one living organism, you know, what do you say to cats other than, you know, you know, getting them on the bandstand and playing with them, uh, keeping their, keeping their focus similar to what Levy did with you, but also just sort of encouraging them to stay the, the, take the insecure path. Well, that's up to them. You know, I tell them if, you know, they're going to do this, they better really want to do it. And in fact, they should probably consider if they could do something else. <laughs> oh, like with me, if you ask me at that certain time, would you do something else? I said, no, I only want to do this. It scared the shit out of my mom when I was younger. Sure. But then the time with George Shearing, she said, well, I guess you'll be okay. That really, <laughs> yeah, that really was a great gig, man. Very good pay scale. But I was, you know, 25 years old and I was, you know, at that point. So I was, a, you know, was ahead of the curve with that, but I'm playing the scene the way it existed then. It's like I knew exactly what to do because I had a lot, a lot of fortuitous circumstance. Like be, meeting Art Pepper in high school and moving across the street from Leroy Vinegar and, you know, stuff like that. So, um, I mean, that's just one of many things. Of my sister bringing Phil Woods to my house, you know. Yeah, it's pretty, you really were part of the Cosmic Brotherhood. I mean, the, so once you, after Swallow, where did, did you wind up with a loft for like 160 bucks a month? I I moved to, to, uh, uh, my wife and kid came back and then we just couch surfed all over Brooklyn and New York, subletting and staying with friends and, and then we ended up moving to the Poconos in 1970. Beautiful. So what was... When you moved there, you were able to establish a, a couple of steady, uh, at least one steady gig in the Poconos. Well, I was uh, I was basically going back and forth to New York the first couple of years, and I would do I would do subs in the resorts. There were a lot of resorts then with bands. I'd do subs in the resorts if I was available, and then when I, th- I stopped working with Gary, he broke up the band, and I took a, a gig for a year at the Mount Airy Lodge which is a, a, a show gig and, uh, you know, dance and show gig with very good musicians, including Steve Gilmore, where Steve and I first came together, 1972. It's a guy I still need to, I need to connect with that. So you connected with Gilmore in 72. Oh, yeah. We started playing every night together. We played six nights a week, a week together. And I loved his playing, and he ended up being a part of my musical life for many, many, for decades after that. And, uh, I mean, he, when Phil hired... Played with me and Steve. He said, well, I would really like the guys the way you guys play with me. And we were already a, a team doing all kinds of different stuff, including rhythm and blues and rock and roll and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of jazz for fun and playing shows. Then my reading got really good for a while. Different <laughs> 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 music every night, you know. You know, you, you have lived so many different 
lives as a musician. I, I, I recently had, a couple years ago, had great opportunity to do several interviews with uh, the great bass player Ray Neapolitan. So I need you to talk about the, <laughs> the, 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 the Treneers, the Black Chitlin Circuit. The, yeah, he, it was actually, we, we worked with one of the Treneers. We worked with Milt. Yeah, it was a, the they were brothers. He, he, Cliff, and he, Claude. But... Yeah, he's Cliff and he's Claude. When did was, how did when did that come into the career of Goodwin? Was that before? Well, when? listen, uh, Ray and I were friends, and he called me up and said, "You know, I'm working with Bill Trenier, and uh, we don't have a drummer. Would you be interested in playing? We're going to when we go to Miami, we'll be on the road for most of the year." I said, "Yeah, man." At that point, I was 20 years old, about to turn 21, and I really felt like I wanted to get out of town. So I took the gig, and I went out. Played with Bill for almost a year with Ray and Eddie Baker, the pianist from Chicago. Wow. And uh, so I was in Miami. I met all the cats there. <laughs> and I was in Chicago. And I met all the cats there. And, you know, and we were in Milwaukee and I met everybody there. And then we were in you know, Omaha and, you know, Boston. You know, we were all over the place. And I got to know the, uh, the Trenier, the older Trenier brothers in their band. It was a great, great bunch, too. We had a lot of fun, a lot of parties. I met Demita Joe, a fabulous singer. Absolutely. Her piano player was Albert Daly. Oh, my and God. And Albert kind of adopted me. He was like my big brother. Dude was and, a freaking uh, we genius, to, man. We were always up to nefarious stuff, you know. But, that, I, you know, just for my own peace of mind, because it's very rare. I mean, uh, you know, I, I just did a couple interviews with Al Cooper, and he... He was like, he had no idea what I was even talking about. Well, he did, but, you know, guys like John Sebastian. Remember, huh? <laughs> well, no, I want you to talk about this the, this black chitlin circuit that you were on. I mean, this is fast. You were not playing, uh, you know, the Playboy Club. You were... I, the, it wasn't, yeah, Jake, it wasn't really the chitlin circuit, man. The Trineers were, they were a separate club act, and they played, and Milt, too, and we played, uh, well, usually called... Either supper clubs or uh, uh, some were some were called uh, salt and pepper joints because black people and white people would come together. I, I was just going to ask you. So, this, so there there were some integrated uh, audiences for some of these. Mostly, what we yeah we played in Miami was all mixed up, and we played a really late in Miami. Started at eleven, finished at six in the morning. So everybody would come in after their gigs. It was a big showbiz hangout. You know, I met all these people. I got. They would come up and sing sometimes. I, I played with Little Willie John. Oh, I love one it. One night, and he really, he really told, told me he really loved my playing. When you, if you were out for the full year, though, you were definitely in some rural southern areas. Do you have any good stories about, like, I mean, did, were you guys all able to stay in the same hotel? Did you have to go to the white? The, did they have to drive into the well, black? Uh, the first time we went to Miami, Ray and I stayed in the black hotel. I see. This is what this is. This is it. This is the sick. This is the greatest story ever. You stay. That you did the re, the role reversal. Uh. Well. Yeah. You know. We were the only white people in the hotel. <laughs> Me and Ray. And we, you know, after a while, we were in Miami so much, we were getting really canned. <laughs> pretending to be like uh, Cuban refugees. That's <laughs> it, man. Yeah, we got run out of. We were with Baker, who was black, and Ray and I. And we stopped to get coffee in Georgia. And, 
the local sheriff was in this diner. He told us to get out of town and never come back. Oh, my God. I just... Said, no problem, boss. <laughs> Later, man. You got it, man. We're out, man. We I are out. Said, really strange, man. Really weird. It's like you hear about it and you think of yourself as being a liberal and open-minded. And then you see that shit and go like, yeah, they're, they're serious about this. Uh, you know, it's really, it's true, man. It's all, when you see it in, in the in the flesh, it's like, it's a major wake-up call. But the... I'll say. Um, can you talk about, like, the, how much, you know, the, I, I've been thinking a lot about you and your generation, Perla, Mike Clark, all these guys, like, you know... It just sort of the the tenuous nature, the precarious nature of life, what we've been through with the the pandemic, and obviously, you know, we're sort of on the other side of it. I just I wonder about you know sort of your gratitude, or if you have you know coming out of the of the pandemic as we're able to sort of connect again and and in some ways and communally share the music. You know, um, do you have? a newfound gratitude about the whole situation. Um, and also, you know, uh, like just talk about the healing qualities of music and how it's kept you on this planet for 81 years. Well, I don't think it's just that. No, of course not. But I mean, playing music. Yeah, go ahead. Well, music, music uplifts me. Yeah. And playing music that I love really uplifts me even further. But, uh, I didn't really understand the concept of gratitude for a long time exactly i mean i sort of knew what it was superficially but as time goes on i realized that i'm very very lucky like i said fortuitous circumstance but i prepared for a fortuitous circumstance i realized but i'm great of course i'm very grateful and i you know i have a lot of gratitude to a lot of people and just to you know the the cosmos or whatever you know um like I, was, I was meant to do this chuck israel's said to me one time that I was to the manor born. <laughs> to that man, another... Uh, but was there some discernible moment you can talk about when you kind of... when all of a sudden it went from a superficial understanding of gratitude to a deeper understanding of it? Well, for a long time, I really can't remember when it was, but for a long time I just figured I'm really good and I deserve everything that happened right. because I can, I can handle it, right. you know? And, uh, and I, you know, I didn't want to fail. I had a very very much uh, wanted to succeed and I had a lot of feeling about it and a lot of energy about it and I put a lot a lot into it. It was very intense and I think uh, kind of overwhelmingly uh, to some people. But I just, uh, you know, the laser beam focused, man, on what I wanted, which doesn't make you the most generous person. But, you know, it's, uh, nevertheless, I had only four great kids and a couple of nice wives and uh, you know, no. I got a great girlfriend. And, uh, uh, tell me, well, tell me about the, great. yeah, no, it's beautiful. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very hearty, rich existence. I, I, um, what is, can you just talk a little bit about what this, like what gets you most excited? What kind of like schedule, how often do you play at your club? I know last time I talked to you, you were living there. Um, I do live there. You, you, yeah, I live there, and we play. I play once a week, for sure. Uh, sometimes more, but I play every Thursday night. Uh, we do an open jam, and I play the uh, Bill Washer and the bass player Joe Mike- Michaels, and I have the house band. And then people come and sit in with us, and a lot of drummers come in. All have like 
you know, anywhere from two to six drummers who want to sit in, so kind to fit them all in. You know, I play an hour and then usually don't play again. It's de- just depends on who is there. But I'm there every Thursday, and I do uh, I do some weekend gigs and uh, local jazz spots around here. I play with a lot of younger younger musicians, and uh, and that's really good. I really like that. Well. So. I mean, it's just beautiful, the cycle of music and the knowledge and the love being passed on from that was passed on to you and continues to get passed on. And uh, b- before before we wrap, I mean, I, I got I got Washer tomorrow. Well, I mean, oh, good. that dude, that dude was, I mean, like I have these Curtis Fuller records and there's this white cat, Bill Washer. When was the first time you crossed paths with Washer? Oh, God, it's been years and years ago. I know. I'm just trying to figure out what was the first memory of that guy. Well, Bill was Bill was a part of that whole thing with uh, uh, the the uh, Silverlight brothers, you know, uh, Barry Miles and Terry Silverlight. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Silverlight brothers, yeah. And uh, and uh, Vic Juris was a part of that. Eric Kloss, absolutely, and, yep. And Eric, and, uh, you know, became friends. He started playing in New York all the time with Phil in the 70s, and these guys would all come in to see us, you know. So I got to know all of them, and, and I had met I had met Vic in the early days of Phil's group, and we, just, you know, we all just became friends and always supported each other. So it was always, you know, uh, that I've always believed that, uh, you know, I should treat other younger musicians the way the older musicians treated me. So try to do whatever I can. It's unfortunate I don't have enough work to really pass it on to too many people. But well, I just, you know what it is? I want to tell you something, Goodwin, because we haven't talked in a, in a minute, but, you know, you your impact is unquantifiable, and I also would say that um, maybe it's it's quality over quantity, you know? Maybe you don't have the opportunity, you know, 30, 20 times a month to have an impact, but when you do, you know, when you have that moment, in the moment, that impact is unquantifiable, so don't take it for granted, you know? Well, uh, yeah, I don't take it for granted. That's why I still practice. <laughs> Absolutely. Keep those hands, you know? Got to get those hands gotta together. Keep those hands together. <laughs> Stan's going to come back from the dead and, and haunt me. <laughs> well, I, you know what? My goal when I get back to the East Coast is to come down to the Delaware Water Gap and catch a hang in person, man. It's, uh, Please, man, that'd be great. You know, I, 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 you know, you're part of the Brotherhood, and uh, you know, you're doing good work, and just Stay on the righteous path, man. It's uh, it's really great to reconnect with you. You know, the latest recording I did is uh, me and Billy Hart playing together. Wait, just do just double drums? Well, with uh, Ben Street and George Garzon. Oh my God! Quartet, quartet. Yeah, it's out now. It's called Sound on Sound. All right. On uh, Vector Disc Records. I'm gonna have to check that out. Garzon's a bad man. Oh yeah, yeah. Ben Street was great and. Billy Hart is like one of my oldest drummer friends and just general friends. Well, friends. The, the, that Hal Galper album will live in forever. Oh, in, yeah, yeah, it, Wild Bird. Well, I mean, it's the greatest album. double drums. I've never, it's just so freaking great, man. Oh, we had a blast. You know, he's such a great cat, great drummer, a great person, a great friend of mine. Keep your heart open, Goodwin. We'll talk soon, man. Much love to you, brother. Thanks, Jake. All right. Great be, to talk to you, man. All right. Always good to hear you, man. Be cool. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, bye.